0: Well, to continue in our time of worship, let's worship through hearing God's Word read and preached. Today we are continuing in our series through the Beatitudes, and in fact, we only have this week and next week to complete the series. So join me in opening up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verse 9 will be our focus this morning. And the seventh of the eight Beatitudes. Uh, Earlier in our scripture reading, we heard from James chapter 3. And uh, if you didn't know this, many scholars believe that the book of James is essentially a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And believe that is right. But in James 3.17, we heard that the wisdom that is from above from the Spirit of God is first pure and then it is peaceable. Hebrews 12.14 says something similar when it says in reverse order, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These verses show us that purity and peacemaking go together. Holiness before God and striving for peace or reconciliation with one another, they can't be separated. And this is what we see here, of course, from Matthew 5 as well. Because God, uh, Christ gives a blessing in verse 8 to the pure in heart. And then the very next verse says, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, with this in mind, let's read the text. Matthew 5, let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down to our verse of focus, verse 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Father, we do pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us today. Father, we, we think about this idea of peacemaking, and we are reminded that conflict is such an ever-present daily reality in this fallen world, but but we long to learn from you. We long to be conformed to your image as the ultimate peacemaker. We pray, Father, that you, through your spirit, work among us today so that Lord, we walk away with a stronger endeavor and a confidence in the equipping power of the Holy Spirit to be a peacemaker and to enjoy that blessing and favor that comes upon the peacemakers to be called the children of God. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak and that through your voice, Lord, you would act. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, there's a clever sketch in the comic series, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. If you know me, you know that I'm a big fan of Calvin and Hobbes. It's that comic strip from the late 80s uh, and 90s where, you know, you have this six-year-old Calvin uh, with his stuffed tiger, uh, the philosopher. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes, they're out playing in the yard and they're playing war. And Hobbes stops and he asks Calvin, why do we always play war and not peace? Calvin replies, too few role models. There's a tragic element of truth in this, isn't there? Peacemakers are not just few and far between in this world, but often their work is thankless, often they are quickly forgotten. We don't make heroes out of peacemakers, typically speaking. We, when we think about how little esteemed peacemakers are, it's interesting, though, we think about peacemaking not being highly esteemed. It's not like this world doesn't long for peace, though. Certainly there's a certain reality to the fact that some people do just love to fight. Some people do just like to watch the world burn. But nobody really wants unending conflict. All of our books, our movies, uh, even the ones that glorify conflict, eventually um, end with some sort of attainment of peace. Even those who spend their whole lives fighting battles long to rest in peace beyond the grave. So why then, you know, to quote this famous philosopher, Calvin, six-year-old, why are there so few peacemakers? Well, as we've seen all along with these Beatitudes, how the world understands these virtues is often very different than how our Lord intends them. And how the world thinks that these virtues are obtained is often very different than how they're actually brought about. I mentioned earlier that peace and purity of heart go together. Peacemaking follows from heart-cleansing. But the world doesn't like it this way. The world wants one without the other. They want peace, but they could care less about purity. They don't see the connection between morality or moral purity and peace and peacemaking. Essentially, peace to an unbeliever really often just ends up being just an absence of conflict an absence of conflict, a selfish desire, really, um, so that they can get what they want out of life. You know, we live in a world where maybe one cry of a previous generation is all we're asking is just give peace a chance. We live in a world where they bestow the highest honors, the Nobel Peace Prize, upon those who um, supposedly advocate for peace. But essentially... To the world, peace is simply an absence of conflict. And an absence of conflict can't really be peace without the presence of something positive in its place. Peace to the world is not really for the good of neighbor, but for the good of me. I want to enjoy a quiet and peaceful life. I want to be left alone so I can live life in my own way. I want to be able to live it up in peace. You know, those other people can deal with their own problems. Just leave me out of it. But of course, we see something very differently from our Lord here in this passage. In one respect, the Jews, the um, original audience here, they were steeped in the Old Testament theocracy, and they believed that the inbreaking of the kingdom of God would usher in an all-out war on unbelievers. Like if we kill all the bad guys, we can have peace, right? But in contrast to this, Jesus entirely flips the script. He announces a radically new and different kingdom. Now His ministers certainly wage war, but not through taking up the sword. In this kingdom, the ministers of this kingdom are called to be agents of reconciliation. And in contrast to the selfish kind of a pleasure-seeking, superficial peace, as if it's an absence of conflict, Jesus also comes announcing a, a blessing upon those who are active in fighting for peace. Active in bringing into a relationship of peace people, others, even enemies. And that, brethren, is what we see here in this passage today. What we see is that knowing the Prince of Peace and being infused with His peace by the Spirit as a characteristic of His kingdom, we are blessed and we are favored and we are loved as those who fight for peace. And that is a marker, that is a characteristic of the children of God. That's what we see in our passage today. I want to break this down, though, and I want to expand upon this, all of the themes that i just brought up here uh, in these opening words, but I want to do this by essentially working backwards today. I want to start at the end of the verse and work our way to the beginning of it. And so we'll do this under three points uh, to guide kind of our thoughts today. Three things we see, who God is, what God has done, and how peace is brought. Who, what, and how. If we want to understand peace and we want to understand peacemaking, let me just encourage you. I just exhort you. We must begin with who God is. We have to. We have to begin with who God is. We, be, we begin with who God is with this beatitude because essentially we, we kind of begin with this in relation to all the beatitudes. Remember, as we've gone through these, these are virtues of God's Holy Spirit at work in the human heart. These are characteristics given as a free gift from God in our conversion, and we are called to then pursue and cultivate these things through the indwelling Holy Spirit, knowing that such a life is blessed by God, is favored, is happy. And this, I think, is something that comes out in this beatitude particularly. Because what does the end of the verse say? Peacemakers are sons of God. Children of God. Here again, just like all the beatitudes, it isn't your actions of obedience. It isn't you making the first move that brings about this blessing. It's God's action upon you first. You are children of God before you can then live like members of his household. How you live depends upon who you are, not the other way around. So in this respect, if we are to understand the children of the household, we need to understand the father of the household. So let's think about who God is. Who is God in relation to this idea of peace? Well, uh, in more than seven times in Scripture, at least seven times, God is called the God of peace. The God of peace is His very name, and His name embodies His nature. We know, of course, that Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. The Old Testament prophesied that the coming Messiah would come and speak peace to the nations. That He would come and be the peace of the nations. We're reminded that when Christ entered this world on, uh, the, the, uh, in His incarnation, that the, the angels appeared to the shepherd singing, Peace on earth. We know that right before Jesus ascended out of this world, He told His disciples, My peace I give to you. We know that in His death, it's described as that he made peace through the blood of his cross. We know that in our salvation we are assured that Jesus Christ is our preach, uh, uh, our peace, that in, in our con- in our conversion, it's because he came and preached peace to us. We know that his office as a mediator continually lives so that to make peace. That's what a mediator does. But not only the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit is often called the agent of peace as well. He is the means by which peace is brought about. So, peace is an essential attribute and characteristic of the triune God. If we are to enjoy peace, if we are to understand peace, if we are to be agents of peace, we must begin with God. And we must be united with God in Christ. It's only when we're children of God can we then follow in the footsteps of our Father. It's only when we are united to God in Christ and and we enjoy a sharing with Him, a communion with Him, can we then receive the blessing of peace from His hand and then go and do likewise. It's only when we are filled with the fullness of God and remade in the image of God can we then from His fullness pursue peace. Thus, if peace is so central to the nature and character of God, is it any surprise then that His children embody peace as well? That's one of the purposes of the gospel, brethren, is to remake you after the image of God. In sin, in the fall, the image of God has been broken, it has been marred, it has been distorted. As Calvin said, uh, John Calvin, that is. <laughs> I've got to clarify that from here on out. If I quote him, as Calvin said, the image of God is like the ruins of of, of, of a beautiful home. There's a remnant still there, but it's it's torn down. It needs to be restored. That's what the Gospel has come to do in us, to renew us day by day according to the image of God. So if we are to be peacemakers, if we are to walk in peace, if we are to pursue peace, we must begin with who God is, knowing God, Knowing Him not just on Sundays, but knowing and pursuing Him and participating, communing with Him, sharing with Him, becoming like Him day by day by day. So that image is restored in us. So peacemaking and peace begins with knowing and pursuing God. And it's fueled by contemplating Him, gazing upon His beauty. Communing with Him in worship. Our daily food and our daily drink so that we are conformed to His image. But secondly, and perhaps more specifically on this point, we don't just begin with who God is, but we also have to move to what God has done. What God has done. You should go without saying that peace is not just a characteristic of the nature of God. But peace also undergirds all of his works in both creation and redemption. And the work of creation, before sin entered the world, the Garden of Eden, was paradise. It was a paradise of peace. There was no conflict. There was no sorrow. There was no unrest. There was no disturbance. It was how God intended creation to be. Of course, the end of all things mirrors this as well. The new heavens and the new earth, they are characterized by peace. That's a theme of the uh, the, the last few chapters in the book of Isaiah. If you recall, the swords will be beaten into plowshares. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Our God is a God of peace, and because He's a God of peace, all of His works are for making peace. So it's no wonder then that peace... Characterizes the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus is announcing here. That ultimate peace that, that marks the age to come has already broken into this age in the kingdom of God and Christ. And those who are members of this kingdom reflect this. To be even more specific here, peace is also one of the preeminent blessings that we enjoy in our salvation. I quoted it earlier when Jesus ascended, John uh, chapter 14, before he ascended. He said, I, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And not like the world gives to you. This is something different. No wonder then that every, almost every epistle in the New Testament begins with grace and peace to you. It's a blessing secured by Christ, freely given to the members of the New Covenant. Those who are united to Christ. So my point here is that we are peacemakers because God first made peace with us. It's not just who He is, but He's what what He has done. And this this gets at our ultimate motivation for being agents of peace. This gets at why peace can't just be an absence of conflict. This is not a peace or peacemaking that springs from self-interest. It's not just so that we can live a kind of peaceful tranquility, the the kind of life that we all want, right? It's not just a a life to be left alone, not to be bothered by division or conflict. No, when we look at the, the lens of the gospel, the peace that we seek is the peace that we enjoy ourselves by being reconciled with God. And our motivation is not just for our own desires and comforts. It's because we long to treat others how God has treated us. We long to model the gospel. Think about it from this standpoint, Romans 5.10. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. God is the ultimate peacemaker. We were enemies of God. But He was not content with leaving us alone. He wasn't just, you know, I'm going to stay out of that conflict. Uh, I'm going to leave them to what they deserve. I'm not going to get my hands dirty with that mess that they created for themselves. Neither was He content with a kind of superficial peace uh, uh, that costs nothing, that accomplishes nothing. Words and names only. No, God and Christ pursued us when we wanted nothing to do with Him. Because we were alienated. God and Christ suffered and died to secure peace for us. It wasn't a peace that cost Him nothing. It wasn't a peace that was easy. It wasn't a peace that was selfish. He did it for us, not for anything that any benefit that he would get from it. This then is our basis to go and do likewise. We walk in the character of God as we're remade in the image of God, and we model to others how he has acted toward us. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? Modeling the gospel. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Show mercy as you've been shown mercy. Seek peace as God has sought peace with you. Pursue others when they want nothing to do with you because God pursued you. That's the, the life of the Christian, the gospel, being infused with the truth and power of what God has done for us so that we become the hands and feet and mouth of the Lord toward others. So again, the power of peacemaking lies in God. In God's own fullness. It doesn't lie in you and it's not motivated by anything in you wanting to secure an absence of conflict or a nice and peaceful life. Any selfish interest. It's out of love and God for neighbor. Love for God and neighbor. In fact, you know, that, if you're visiting, visiting here... Uh, that's why here at CRBC, you know, our worship, our Bible studies, our prayer meetings, our discipleship, everything we do as a church, it's not really heavily weighted toward the practical. Here's how to do this. Here's how to live. Here's 12 steps for the Christian life. And of course, don't get me wrong, the practical is important. And the practical most specifically comes out in the more intimate settings of Bible study um, and discipleship, which is why particularly if you're a member here you must be involved in those things but most importantly when we gather in worship our worship our focus must be centered upon God and upon who god uh, what god has done for us because that is the basis for everything practical that is the basis for everything you can't model the gospel if you don't know the gospel and since we forget the gospel every day we need it every day, most specifically we need it when we gather on the Lord's day. So he is the God of all peace, the prince of peace, the agent of peace, all of his works are peace and they secure peace and following the last or, uh, order of these uh, following the order of these last two beatitudes, we see that In Christ, He has satisfied us with righteousness. He's shown us mercy where we didn't deserve it. He's purified our hearts, the deepest part of our being, the source and fountain of all of our actions. He's made peace with us, peace between God and man. And He's adopted us into His family and given us the family likeness, sons of God. Entailing then that He's given us the family bounty and the family inheritance, the family resources, the family riches, the Holy Spirit to empower and enable and lead us into peace. This is the path to being a peacemaker. We begin with God and we begin with what He has done for us in Christ because that radically changes everything else particularly the way in which we relate to one another. Well, with all this in mind then, we can now move to the specific, and yes, the practical. The blessing of being a peacemaker and what God has called us to. So, who God is, what God has done, now third and finally, how peace is brought. How peace is brought. I mentioned it earlier, but it's important to again emphasize that peace is not merely just an absence of hostilities uh, one illustration of this uh, you know i love um, american war history uh, i'm reminded here of the vietnam war and the, the the crazy 60s right the riots uh the civil unrest the protests, the da- draft dodging all that came with the, the vietnam war um but when I think about peace just being, a, a, you know, the mere absence of formal hostilities, I think of, of, of security advisor Henry Kissinger in 1972, right? At kind of the height of this unrest, he held a press conference and his famous words there, um, infamous words, peace is at hand. This was, this was huge and it ended up um, kind of leading President Nixon into a, uh, a victory in the election a few weeks later. But it was all political correctness. It was all just a show. It was all premature. It would be months before a formal agreement with the enemy would be reached. It was an agreement that only lasted two years anyway because the North Vietnamese broke it. It really wasn't until 20 years later, in 1995, that diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Vietnam were finally restored. I share the story because this is often how we look at peace. We think of peace simply being an absence of formal hostilities. Well, we're not at each other's throat. We're not arguing. We're not fighting. We're not waging war against one another. We're going our own ways. We're living peaceably in our own corner of the house. Corner of our neighborhood. Corner of the world. Peace must be at hand. This is not the biblical idea of peace. We must not assume that when we're called to be peacemakers, it means means seeking peace at all costs. We must not assume or be tempted to to listen to the false prophets who, like in the Old Testament, said, peace, 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 when there was no peace. Peace lies at the heart level. It's not superficial. It's not for the sake of quiet and comfort. Peace never means peace with the wicked, or making peace with sin, or making peace at the expense of truth. As J.C. Ryle rightly said, let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Like I'll say, that's, that's probably a chief weakness of our generation. We want to kind of cast off previous generations. Maybe that's, maybe that's the boomers. They're always grumpy about something, right? We want to be tolerant. We want to be gentle. We want to be accepting. But so often we wrongly assume that being a peacemaker means that we are tolerant when it comes to truth. We need to be reminded of our Lord's words. You know, He did come announcing peace, but He also came saying, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because the gospel divides. It's a distortion of peace when we think peace is making peace or reconciliation with error. Truth will always cause a division in this world. As long as evil is present. And we're called to fight the good fight. We're called to contend for the faith. And that's why in some respect, I titled this sermon as, Blessed are those who fight for peace. There is a real warfare that goes on in being a peacemaker. So what is peacemaking? Let's be more specific here. The Bible's definition of of peace is that it's a positive state. It's a positive disposition of love and unity, of well-being, and of wholeness. Maybe you've heard this described in using the Old Testament Jewish word shalom. Now, there's a whole bunch of theology that's often forced into that word um, more than I think ought to be at times. But there's an element of truth in, in, in the fact that shalom doesn't just mean an absence of conflict. Shalom is kind of wholeness. There is a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another that spills over into other areas of life. This is what peacemaking is. And this is why Jesus says, you know, he does not say, blessed are the peace lovers or blessed are the peace keepers. Again, going back to that idea of being tolerant, I'm going to keep the peace. That's not peacemaking. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking is an act of virtue, it's not passive, it has legs. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not a superficial tranquility that denies reality. It is the presence of something. Love and unity. A peacemaker then is someone who uses their strength and their influence to promote peace and love and unity. They do this in public and in private. They do this in their homes and in their neighborhoods and in their churches. They actively fight for peace. They take the initiative in pursuing peace. They find pleasure and enjoy the pleasure of God in diligently working to make peace and maintain peace. Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To be eager means to be zealous. It means to be active, to take pains, to take every opportunity to do so. So yes, while on the negative side, a peacemaker is one who avoids quarrels and strife and contention, but on the positive side, they use their words, they use their influence, they use their relationships to bring people together. Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. What does that look like? We just keep reading through the end of Romans 12. He defines that. To live peaceably with all people means never to avenge yourself when wronged, but to positively feed and help your enemies and to positively overcome evil with good. That's what it means to be a peacemaker, to overcome evil with good. It's an act of work, actively repaying evil with good. And so this is why, you know, a peacemaker is one who can't just ignore underlying conflict, even if it hasn't broken out in hostilities, even if it all just remains under the surface and it's unspoken. A peacemaker is a bigger person. They go to others first. They're straightforward and honest. They don't deny reality. They don't claim that there's peace when there's no peace. They don't act like everything is okay when things really aren't okay. Brother, this is incredibly difficult. I think particularly, you know, maybe an illustration in marriage. All it takes is a misspoken word, a deed left undone, or an off-putting glance or a gesture. The husband tends to think that everything is okay, or act like it's okay when it really isn't. The wife tends to wait, want to wait until he comes to her first. That's not living in accordance with the Gospel. A peacemaker is one who is honest. One who pursues others as God has pursued us. Again, going back to that second point. You know, aren't you glad that God didn't just ignore our problem of sin and the division it caused? Aren't you glad that He took the initiative? Aren't you glad that when we turned our backs on God, He didn't turn His back on us? That He wasn't just sitting around waiting for us to come to Him? Aren't you glad that God didn't fail to pursue peace just because it was difficult and inconvenient and it involved humility and it came at great personal cost? This is why in an ultimate sense, brethren, hear me when I say this, because of the work of God, because of the nature of God, conflict is our business. You understand what I mean by that, right? You can't say that conflict's none of your business. The peacemaker is not one who stands on the sidelines and is just content because that conflict hasn't reached his front door. Right? Think of how Hitler was appeased over and over again. Sorry, another war analogy. But following World War I, leading up to World War II, the late 30s, like Europe just continually appeased Hitler and acted like everything was okay while he just... By the time he gained power, it was too late. Millions died. Peacemakers do not stand on the sidelines just because conflict hasn't reached the front door. That's not in line with the Gospel. That's not in line with the Kingdom of God. And so this then, I think, really gets to the most specific aspect of being a peacemaker. We can talk about it in regards to relationships but ultimately, a peacemaker is one who labors to see that sinners are reconciled to God. That's really where this all comes together. If peace and peacemaking is a fruit of the Spirit, if it is a benefit and blessing that Christ has earned for us in the Gospel, if we hear Ephesians 2 where it says the cross is the basis upon which both peace with God and peace among men is accomplished, then the ultimate mark of a peacemaker isn't just that they're active in making peace in their communities, in their families, in their nation. The ultimate mark of a peacemaker is they know that scriptures say there is no peace for the wicked. And as long as people are alienated from God and Christ, true peace is impossible. Brother, we cannot abandon sinners to their fate. We cannot stand by idle as people slide into eternal punishment. We really believe in the doctrine of hell, not just as a doctrine, not just as something like, yeah, okay. Do we really believe it in the sense that there is eternal punishment for those after death who are outside of Christ? And that God has called us to be that watchman, to announce that danger is on the horizon, to turn and repent and be saved and be reconciled to God. Let us then, as we think about peacemaking, know that a peacemaker is one who labors and prays and supports and engages in evangelism and in the ministry of the church, which is evangelism, and the furtherance of the gospel. Because when our hearts are changed and are reconciled to God in Christ, we know then that reconciliation with others is possible. So we strike at the root. And we urge people to be reconciled to God in Christ. Well, brethren, as we conclude today, I just want to bring it all back around and again ask that question, how is it that this peace is brought about? By way of summation, peacemaker is one who actively seeks peace for those around them. They are careful, they are purposeful, they are intentional, and they know their work never ends in this life. A peacemaker is one who absolutely seeks peace at an external level that the gospel may be adorned, but we always labor with an eye to the ultimate level, looking to the heart, knowing that ultimate peace can only be made and brought when sinners are reconciled to God in faith and repentance. So as we look out and we see that Jesus Christ is our peace, since we know that ultimate peace only comes through the peace that He gives us in the Gospel, we labor and pursue regular communion with Him to be transformed into His image. Ephesians 2.17 says that the point, at the point of our greatest hostility towards God and one another, Christ came and preached peace to us, In the gospel. And this, brethren, is what he does every single Sunday. And that's why, to go back to that six year old Calvin, contrary to Calvin, we don't gather and rehearse war here. We don't gather to speak about war. We don't gather and put our focus on all the enemies in the culture, all the enemies of God, all the destruction they are doing how this world's going straight to hell and we can just let them go. We gather each Sunday with Christ as our role model. Making peace. Speaking peace. And we recount that every week. So that becomes, becomes to embody us and our lives. And we implore 2 Corinthians 5.20 others to be reconciled with God on the basis of His life and death and resurrection. Those then who hear this gospel, those then who pursue Christ in this way, those who endeavor to go and do likewise, those who bear this characteristic of being a peacemaker, we are assured right here by our Lord they receive blessings. The blessing of being owned as children of God. The blessing of adoption, we considered it in the last hour. We got the royal name upon us. We have all the resources of the family at our disposal. We have access to the throne of God. We are pitied, we are protected, we are provided for. We are chastened even by a loving Heavenly Father, never to be cast off. We are children of God and we enjoy ultimately a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that is the blessing. That's the favor right there. That's the happiness if you're looking for a happy life. A peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, you may gain the whole world, you may get everything you want in life. Everything. But if you don't have peace within, you'd be miserable. You'd be utterly miserable. And the flip side of that is you may lose the whole world. In fact, that's where Jesus goes next. We'll see that next week. Just so you think that you know, being a peacemaker isn't dependent upon results and doesn't have unrealistic expectations that it's actually going to work, I'm going to remind you, our Lord says, that you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be hated. The flip side, it, you may lose the whole world, but if you have peace in your soul if you have peace in Christ, there's no greater joy. There's no greater happiness. There's no greater satisfaction. There's no greater blessing. As one Puritan said, when a man's way pleases God, even the stones in the street will be at peace with him. Brethren, does your peace lie in your circumstances? and how well your life is going, or is Christ Jesus your peace? That's the question before us today. If Christ is your peace, then you are a child of God, you are blessed, and you are favored, and on the basis of that, that internal peace and blessing, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Just think of how our homes, how our churches, how our places of, work and school and callings would be if we were all active and faithful and peacemaking as our Lord has been to us. Well, may God give us the grace of this peacemaking and set before our eyes today, Christ, who is our peace, that we may be conformed to His image and go and do likewise. Let's pray.